thank you so much for being here in Brown Chapel or the main sanctuary or online. We are continuing our Fight the Good Fight of Faith series. We're going to take a break next week. Today is the last of the messages about Babylon, the church in Babylon or Israel in Babylon. Uh, but we will continue off and on throughout the year to talk about fighting the good fight of faith. As I said, next week we're going to take a break, uh, or at least I will take a break. I'm, I'm uh, going to pass the torch to Pastor Corey next week. Um, just you say, why? Well, he's such a good preacher, we need to hear from him. And I'm, I'm, I'm such a preacher, you need a break every now and then. So... Uh, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just giving you and me both a break next Sunday, but I know Pastor Corey is going to be a phenomenal blessing to you. Let's open our hearts as our custom is. Let's look to the screen and let's begin with the Lord's Prayer. All of our hearts together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Lord, we want to thank you that this week in South Carolina, the heartbeat bill passed. We want to thank you for, um, I, I know there's a fight looming. I know that it will be contested, but we thank you for the hearts of our legislators taking us in that direction. May we do everything we can to honor life in South Carolina. Father, we pray for the church that is suffering around the world. They do not have the benefit of laws and processes that can help them and protect them. They are at the mercy of, of uh, sometimes uh, haters of Christ. Father, we pray for Pastor James Coates in Canada. Uh, as far as I know, the first person in Canada that has been taken to jail for having service. And we understand, Lord, that it's, it's a complicated time, and, but we're not here to argue about what should have been done or should not have been done. We are simply aware that our brother is in jail for saying we will have church. So we pray for him, we pray for his wife, we pray for his children, we pray for that church, we pray for other churches that may be facing the same thing, whether it's from an uh, evil intended heart or a well intended heart. Father, we pray that the church would stand strong in difficult days and we pray for our nation. We pray for those that are struggling with this virus. We pray for those that are um, at home with uh, compromised immune systems. Lord, there's so much that we need to be praying for. It's not a matter of just springing out or breaking forth. So much is to be considered in these troubling times in which we live. So we ask for your presence to help us. We pray that you would teach us to love one another as you have loved us. We pray that you would teach us as your people to love the lost. And we pray that you would help us to um, model love 
as never before. It sounds kind of gushy. It sounds kind of sissy. Sounds like something off a soap opera. But Lord, we've lost sight of the power of love. And we ask you to help us to walk in that as we walk through this and help us to represent you well. Now, as we look at this message today about when the government tries to become God, we ask that you would teach us how to handle things that we might think would never happen. And we give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, for years, since 2008, we have been talking about the kind of things that we have been talking about in the last few weeks. It's not, we're not talking about this because of the uh, 2020 election. We've been talking about this for a long, long time. Um, but we are in a climate where we are seeing some things that we'll call possibilities that we perhaps did not think would be possible just a few years ago. And I think the unthinkable becomes more and more unthinkable and the, and the um, undesirable becomes almost inevitable. And I think I would be failing God and failing in my responsibility if I didn't take you through the whole story uh, of times when the church comes under persecution. We've been saying for years that we are in post-Christian America and we need to teach our children and we need to teach our youth differently than we did back when I was in school. Now, um, I, I know that not everybody agrees with that, but I'm, I'm convinced of that. And we need to bring some things to the table to discuss. If you're not convinced that they are happening or if you're not convinced that they can happening, then I ask you to put it on the back burner. Pray about it. Pray about it and let God speak to your heart. I'm willing to do that. And we want to talk about the idea of when government, not, not necessarily our government, but any government, but it can be our government, when government decides to become God. Let me say that one more time because it's, we're, we're incredulous about it. You know, not in America. When government begins to believe that it is God. It happens in Western civilization. It happens in the most unthinkable places. We're going to read from Daniel 3, verses 8 to 18. At this time, uh, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyle, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, you got to understand, we're in chapter 3. Chapter 1, um, the children of Israel, Judah in particular, were thrust into a new culture that was a culture of... Um, um, toleration in the sense that everything was allowable. But now the thing about it is when you try to enforce toleration um, the wrong way, you become intolerant of something else. It's going to happen. And that, but they got a victory because God gave them a miraculous deliverance so that they didn't have to compromise their convictions in chapter one. In chapter two, there was a dream 
that Nebuchadnezzar had that he did not understand the dynamics of and was ready to destroy his whole staff of wise men and, 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 and seers because they could not interpret the dream. And Daniel came forward with the interpretation and it told not only what Nebuchadnezzar saw, but what would be the future of the next few uh, kingdoms. Not only Babylon, but the Medes and Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and then a mysterious future kingdom that would come at the end. It would be a kingdom at the end that was made up of elements of all the other kingdom, but in that day, the kingdom of God would be like a rock rolling down a hill and it would destroy all the kingdoms of this earth. And that day is coming. That day is coming. Revelation says the day comes when we will say Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. And that will be the final fulfillment of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel's prophecy. So man, we're, we're doing great. We're, we're batting a thousand after two chapters. But all of a sudden, that same vision becomes the basis for idolatry. The thing that brought peace to the kingdom of Babylon in chapter 2 now becomes the point of contention in chapter 3. And there is an issue decreed. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar listened to his advisors who were trying to trap um, people that they didn't agree with. It would happen this time and then later when the uh, Persians take over and uh, it would happen uh, with the lion's den story. And the rule was this, you cannot, you cannot evade, you, you can have any kind of faith you want as long as you bow down when we tell you to bow down. See, that was the core of Rome. Rome said, you can have all the gods you want. In fact, do you know the reason that Rome finally started persecuting Christians? It was because they said they were charged with atheism. Can you imagine Christians being charged with atheism? What the Christians said is there is no God but Jehovah. So therefore, because they didn't believe in all the other gods, they were called atheists. It's an amazing story. But they said, you can do what you want to do, but when the music sounds, you have to bow down. And if you don't bow down, you will be thrown into the fire. Somewhere between chapter 2 and chapter 3, something happened in the mind of Nebuchadnezzar or the culture of Babylon or in the politicians of the land that the state determined what was truly God. And at the heart of it, the state itself was saying, you must do what we say. Now, um, but there are some Jews who you set up, verse 12, over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Now you say, where was Daniel in this story? Uh, I've searched years for that, and I've got an answer. If you'll take just a minute, I'll explain it. We have no idea. We don't know where he was. He was probably in another province. He was probably tending to business somewhere else. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who served under Daniel, uh, were near the capital city. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, 
Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? And then he starts going down the musical list. I mean, it was like a commercial for the Grammys. He says, when you hear this music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made very good, but if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Now, now, Nebuchadnezzar was very much aware of the God they served. He had had firsthand experience with the God they served. His issue was, you can serve that God until you begin to cross the line of exclusivity. When you begin to say that that God is above the state, then you are in deep trouble. And if you don't do what the state tells you to do, you will be thrown into that fire and then we'll see what God can deliver you. You remember the Babylonians did not understand the devotion of the Jews in Babylon because their God lost in the mind of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. And what that meant was we don't need to take legal counsel. We don't need to mount up a defense because nothing we can say to you will make any difference to you. And our defense is not in the courts of the land. In other words, our argument is already settled. If we are thrown into the burn, uh, blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Now, here's the central truth. It's from Erwin Lutzer's book, uh, The Church in Babylon. By the way, I recommend that book to you, The Church in Babylon. I think when I say it's out of print, I mean, it's, it's not out of print. It's not a new book, uh, but you can get it. You, you can get it. The, the other book I want to recommend to you might be a little more difficult to get. We sold it here for years, also by Erwin Lutzer, called When a Nation Forgets God. It's a study of the church in Nazi Germany uh, less than 100 years ago. Both of those books are very insightful. This is what Lutzer says. Caesar often competes with God for our allegiance. Under ideal conditions, the responsibility of the state is to protect its citizens and to enact laws that will enable them to flourish. But the state often overreaches with laws that conflict with individual freedoms. As a nation drifts from God, pressure builds as the state encroaches on religious liberty and plays the role of God. Now, I want to give you just a, a, a moment to be sure that we understand a lesson from history. We want to understand um, um, some things that I think will help us process where we just may well be today. Now, I want to, I want to say something that I've said a, a few weeks ago. I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't think that the American government is evil and made up of evil people. But I do think there are evil people in American government. I do think there are some that have restricted 
civil liberties during this last year pandemic and, and God bless them. They're not trying to rob us of liberties. They just don't know what to do with this pandemic. And they're saying, maybe this will help. And, and in their heart, they're saying, let's do this for an, a short period of time. But I also believe there are some people in power in America. There are some American politicians that never let a crisis go to waste. And this behavior we've seen in the last year, whether it's in the front of their mind or the back of their mind, it's an attempt for the government to seize more power to control. And some of them, I'll wager, I'll wager all of Darren's money, I'll wager <laughs> that in the, in, the, in the recesses of their mind, they're thinking this will give us a precedent, this will give us a way to shut the church down or to shut all religion down. I can't, or I, I, I won't give you names. I won't try to speculate on who I think that is. But I do want you to understand, this is not a far-fetched idea um, that, um, that our country is at a very pivotal point and has been for years. And for, it has been for years. Um, we have, as Christians, two responsibilities that we must be careful to keep in proper alignment. I'm talking about, uh, especially in America, our responsibility to God and our responsibility to the state. I think we have a responsibility as Americans to be the best Americans we can be. I think we have a responsibility. I think we have a duty to vote. And I think we ought to vote in a way that reflects Christianity and our, and our, our lifestyle and our, um, our, our convictions and, and, and what we believe is right. I think that we have an indescribable gift. We are one of the few nations um, that when you consider all the nations of the world and the nations of the world uh, that have ever existed, we were a holy experiment that we were called. Back 250 years ago, the idea that the people through a representative democracy, now we, we're not a pure democracy, that's called mob rule, but we're a representative democracy and it, it, was, it was a novel idea. It was, a, it was an idea that people were not sure of, but God seemed to bless it and with all of our mistakes, with all of the wrong decisions that we may have made or misjudgments we may have made, we were introducing a new concept that said, that said this, we receive our liberty from God, but we have a responsibility to steward the freedom that he's given us. And that's a novel idea. That's why it's, it's, it's not grasped as well as it ought to be grasped. It's not the way history has been. Jesus would put it this way. They were trying to trap Jesus into supporting the Roman state, saying that he was supporting the Roman state because that's what the Jews hated. Nobody that was popular in Jewish culture would say we've got to support Caesar and we've got to support the government. So they said, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus could have gone philosophically with, well, yes, you should for this reason, or no, you shouldn't for that reason. But Jesus just asked for a coin. He held it up. He says, whose image is this? And who does the superscription or the writing uh, denote is the leader? And they said, Caesar. And Jesus, I can see him just flipping the silver dollar back to them or the silver shekel and saying this, 
Caesar's image is on that. So render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But praise God, he didn't stop there. But give unto God that which is God's. He said, you're asking question number two when you should be asking question number one. And what Jesus was saying is, yeah, I would advise you to pay taxes. You're going to go to jail if you don't. And that's Caesar's money. But you need to understand there's something else in the equation that doesn't have this image of Caesar on it. It has the image of God on it. And the image of God is on you. So Jesus was saying, the big issue of life is not whether you pay taxes to Caesar. The big issue in life is whether you've surrendered your life to God. We can look at a brief history. The the persecution of Christians began, uh, no no animosity attached with this statement, Um, but the persecution of Christians began with Judaism And then we have some persecution that just seemed to come from the mobs. It was several decades before Rome began to persecute Christians systematically. Now you've got an exception to that. Nero persecuted them. But I'm talking about as an empire persecuting the Christians. But what it boiled down to is this idea of who is the final say? Who is Lord? Rome said you can worship any God you want. You can have any religion you want as long as it doesn't interfere with what the government wants. So whenever a Christian paid their tax. I've told you this. All they had to do was pay their tax, take a pinch of incense, throw it into the fire and say, Caesar is Lord. Well, the Christians we know from history would pay their tax, but they wouldn't throw in the incense and they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord. Very respectfully, they would bow their head after paying their taxes and say, Jesus is Lord. And that opened the door to a floodgate of punishment. Now, after about 200 and some odd years of that, things began to change because of a man named Constantine. Constantine um, had a conversion. Some people don't think his conversion was real. I think it was a real conversion. It might have been a gradual conversion, but it was a real conversion. And before long, because of the efforts of Constantine, it was no longer against the law. It was no longer against the law to be a Christian. That's the way Decius and others set it up. If If you're a Christian, that is against the law. It began under Constantine to say, no, it's not against the law to be a Christian. That was a breath of life, literally, for the church. You guys still with me? What what about y'all in Brown Chapel? Yep, okay, good. It It was life for the church to be able to buy and sell again. See, you know, when you talk about the mark of the beast in Revelation, the mark of the beast was the idea that believers were not able to buy or sell unless they buy into a system. Loved ones, I know that we're wondering, what is the mark of the beast? Is it that strip on the back of our credit card? Is it, is it some, some tracking device that's being, you know, mysteriously introduced into our system? I, I, I don't know what the mark of the beast is, but you've got to remember that the book of Revelation is apocryphal. It means it's a book of pictures and images. And I'm not saying that this is the case. I'm saying you need to think about this. While we're looking for somebody to tattoo our hands or our forehead, it may be an apocalyptic way of saying you adopt the, the life of Antichrist and live 
that's the work of your hands, or you accept his mind, his thinking, his regulations, it's the way you think. And I, I want to tell you, we're so busy looking for marks that we may not understand that the mark of the beast is associated with those that accept the mark and worship. God's not going to send you to hell for somebody holding you down and tattooing your head. I don't believe that at all. The mark of the beast had its effectiveness because it led to the worship of the beast. And I, I worry, personally, I worry a lot more about attitudes and actions than I do microchips. You say, well, pastor, I think you're wrong. My wife thought that for years. It's all right. I may be, I may be. She's usually right. I don't mean she's been thought that about the mark. I just, I've just been wrong from time to time. And um, I've, I've learned whenever she says I'm wrong, I just don't even argue. I just go, cause it's going to end up, I am wrong. So Loved ones, please hear what I'm saying. We are in a place we've never been before and we need to understand things may not come the way we think they will come. But I tell you what happened in Constantinople, the church began to grow with the freedom of it's not against the law for us to be Christians anymore. But you know what happened? The more Christians gained power and the more Christians had things go their way, something horribly frightening happened and it was this. It used to be that we weren't legal, now we're legal. And in fact, we're so blessed, we're gonna make it. If you're not one of us, you're not legal. It's what the church did. In, in Constantinople, it came to the point that you had to become a Christian in order to buy or sell. At first, it was a, if you're a Christian, you can't buy or sell. But it became, if you are not a Christian, you can't buy or sell. And I want to tell you, if the church whether it's the church in Constantinople or the church in Rome or the church in America, if we're not careful, we will so buy into a system that the system will begin to control the shots, call the shots, and we'll find out that there are Christians that are just as mean as the world if they can ever begin to hold the upper hand. Now you know why I'm really not preaching next week. You need a break. We always have to be careful. We, we are to pray for our leaders. I believe in America we ought to vote. Somebody got mad and said, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about us voting. That's because when the Bible was written, nobody could vote. But in the worst political structure, God said, pray for your leaders. Because praying can do something that even voting can't do. If we're not careful and we begin to buy into systems, we will, two things will happen. We will begin to look like the world when we're on top. And that's a horribly frightening thing. But the worst thing that can happen is we begin to put our hope in a system instead of in the kingdom. America was founded on a principle of a constitution that ensures religious freedom. We were not found on a single religion itself. And it's a very delicate balance. It's a very narrow path to walk. And that's why we need to understand that after two great victories in Daniel 1 and 2, we find in chapter 3 that the government 
has become drunk with power and the government says you have to be what we are and you have to, you know, you can keep your beliefs, but you're going to have to do it within our restraints. Now, you see on your outline, new laws were met with old faith. I want to talk to you very quickly about what the three Hebrew children did. We called them, I grew up with three Hebrew children. I thought they were little boys till I was in middle school. Uh, they, they, were, they were grown men. But this is what you do when you come to a place when you have lost control in your mind and the government says you have to do it our way. It may be a well-intentioned move, you know, it, it, you know when, when we were told we couldn't meet, I had people that wanted us to, you know, go march in the streets and have, have church anyway and, you know, pack the church out. We were, we were understanding that we believed in our state and in our, our little part of the world right here. We were trying to help become part of a solution. We didn't mind saying we won't meet for a few weeks. We didn't mind saying that uh, we, we uh, uh, will we'll follow some rules for a little while because sometimes that happens. Uh, when the Assemblies of God was four years old, uh, four was eight years old. Let, let me do my math again. It was four years old. We went through this thing with the Spanish flu. Services were canceled. People wore masks. And the churches agreed to not meet for a while. They did it for this reason, because the government leaders assured them that it was only temporary. And we survived that. We survived that. There's a time that we can be part of the solution or we can be part of the problem. But I'm telling you, the thing that concerns me, the history, I'm a historian, and the thing that concerns me as I look back on history is that even in America, once the government gains a foothold in something, they never let go of it. You know, I, I, if you don't believe me, just go to Pensacola, go to the beach and go across the Bob Sykes Bridge and you'll pay a dollar to go across the Bob Sykes Bridge. A dollar, every time you go, come and go, well not come and go, but every time you come to the beach, you're gonna pay a dollar. And it was interesting to me, when I was nine or 10 years old, they said we're gonna charge 35 cents just for, a, just for three or four years till we get the bridge paid for. And my daddy read that and just laughed. He said, that ought to be on the Jack Benny show. I said, what are you talking about, daddy? He said, I came through the depression. And whenever government says they're going to help and it's going to be temporary, that means it is temporary. It's only going to last till Jesus comes. Now, my, my apologies, my sincere apologies to, to honorable politicians that that's not the way you operate. I know, I know we've had politicians in our church and some in the past and some listen. I understand that. You got to understand I'm, I'm speaking, I'm painting with a very broad stroke of the brush. But these men understood what they were up against and they realized um, well, if, I, if, if we had gone back to our arrival, if we had gone back to Daniel interpreting the dream, we might have said this time in Babylon might not be so bad, but now we're being threatened with death if we don't worship the way the state says. So this is what they did. They held on to three things. They held on to faith. They held on to hope. They held on to love. Now, I am making a 
I've preached about this for years, faith, open love, but I've preached about it from sort of a peaceful pasture land over here. But now I want you to understand that when, uh, when freedoms begin to be lost, the only ones that will truly know how to survive are those that understand the relationship between faith, hope, and love. Anger won't keep you going. And it'll disappoint you every time if you stay angry long enough. You know, some of us, the Lord's trying to teach us, like we said in that first lesson, to just calm down and learn and let me help you. But we don't want to calm down. We want to stay mad. We're like the little boy that uh, um, got sent away from the table because he wouldn't behave. Mama didn't know what to do with him. I don't recommend this as treatment for your child. But she said, go sit over there in the closet and go upstairs and just sit in my closet. Just sit in my closet. Close the door. I don't want to hear a word. You just be quiet. Go sit in the closet. And the rest of the family began to relax and enjoy the meal. And they realized it was way too quiet upstairs. And she yelled up and she says, she says, Tommy, what are you doing? And are you in the closet? Yes, ma'am. What are you doing? Well, I've spit in your shoes. I've spit in your clothes. I've spit on your underwear. I've spit on your jeans. And right now I'm just sitting here waiting for more spit. <laughs> I tell you, anger can exhaust you. Trying to solve spiritual problems with a fleshly means can be exhausting. I don't know exactly how this processed in their mind. I don't know if they had a council meeting, the three of them, and said, this is what we're up against. Maybe they were thinking of the Lord's promise that had been given to uh, 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 Israel in the time of Isaiah. Uh, you know, decades earlier. This is what God said. Now they're about to be thrown into the fire. Listen to what God said through Isaiah the prophet. Do not fear. I, I think you've got this in your notes, don't you? Okay, good. Isaiah 43, one through three. Do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. Oh, here's a verse I want to claim says Shadrach. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched. And Abednego says, I remember the rest of it. Nor will the flame burn you. And Meshach says, you know how he ends it? For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Maybe they reached back and said, boy, if it was true in Isaiah's day, it's true in our day as well. But loved ones, I want to have a reality check. I want, you to, I want you to just buckle up for a moment. Promises are meant to remind us of God's care, not to lock God into a pattern. See, I, I grew up in a, in a mindset that said, if God did it for you, he's got to do it for me because he's no respecter of persons. If God's going to heal this one, he's got to heal that one because he's no respecter of persons. What he does for one, he's got to do for the other. And loved ones, we've talked about this. That passage where it says that God is no respecter of persons has nothing to do, nothing to do, nothing to do with the concept of what God does for Darren, he has to do for me. It means whether it's me or Darren or Mother Teresa, 
It doesn't matter who it is. Our personal righteousness has no bearing on God's willingness to accept us. Nobody gets to heaven because they're better than anybody else. We're all as lost as a goose in a snowstorm and no works of righteousness which we have done will be sufficient to get us a heaven, to heaven above somebody else. When we come to him, we realize, as I've said before, if we're trying to jump from earth to the moon, some of us, like Mother Teresa, may start our jump from the top of Mount Everest. Some of us, like Hitler, may be at the Dead Sea, the lowest point on earth. They may be trying to jump from there. But I want to tell you something. If you're trying to jump from earth to the moon, it doesn't matter if you start at Everest or you start at the Dead Sea. You ain't getting to the moon. And what God is saying when he says that he's no respecter of persons, it, it, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword. It says nobody will get favorable treatment because of their life because we're all sinners. All we like sheep have gone astray. But the other side of that blade says, so all of you, no matter how low you are, can be lifted, but it's going to be by the grace of God. No respecter of persons. The promises are meant to remind us of God's care, not to lock us into a pattern. The enemy wants to do that. The enemy invented the perversion of Scripture. That's what he did in Genesis 3. He questioned, what did God say? What did he mean by that? When he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, you guys still with me? Okay, when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he quoted Scripture and he said, he, he said, uh, Things like this. Go ahead and jump. Because the, the Psalms tell us that God will protect his man and won't let him dash his foot against the stone. God promised you dash. You know, no, no problem. Jump. But Jesus understood that promise was a promise of God's care. And that promise was a promise of God's provision. But he also knew if you didn't understand that, you would be guilty of being presumptuous. And putting the Lord to the test. He, in other words, Jesus was saying, I know God can take care of me if I jump. But he ain't told me to jump. You say, well, God, God told him through Isaiah that the fire would not kindle upon him. Loved ones, I want to tell you something. The church has a history full of martyrs who were consumed by the flame. There were plenty of people that died by the flame. There are plenty of people that weren't delivered from the flame. But every one of them knew God was with them. You get to Hebrews 11 and it says these people were delivered from this, from that, from the flame, from the flood. These people were delivered and we, we love that. We go to a faith seminar and say these people were delivered. But all you do is finish out the verse and it says but others, but others were not willing to accept a deliverance in this world. They were going to trust God all the way. Um, loved ones, God is able to deliver us from the fire. But if he doesn't, he'll walk with us through the fire. You see, the response to the king, they said, God is able. That's the first thing you've got to establish. God is able. The second thing they said, and not only is he able, but he will. 
They were saying, we, we believe God's going to deliver us. But praise God, they said, but even if he doesn't, we're still in his arms. We're still not going to bow down to this idol. The response to the king indicated they knew they were in God's care, whether he delivered them from the flame or not. I want to tell you, it was so difficult to me. And it wasn't from my home church. It was from the environment uh, that surrounded our church. It was so hard to grow up following the Lord, being told, if you don't believe God will always deliver you every time, God will always heal you every time. God will always solve this problem every time. There'll never be any consequences to pay. And, and if there are consequences to pay, or if there is sickness in your life, or if there is tough time that you have to go through, it's your fault for not having faith. Loved ones, I want to tell you, that's, that is a horrendous way for a teenager to grow up trying to learn to trust God. Thank God somebody taught them. Maybe it was in the temple class. Maybe it was in Sabbath class. I don't know. But somebody taught them that God has all power. And God oftentimes does exactly what we ask him to do. But listen to me, boys. If he doesn't, he's still worth being served. He's still worth being followed. The question in this story, and this is so key, this is so fundamental, the question in this story was not whether or not they would escape the fire, but whether or not God would be with them. That's the issue we have to settle when facing the valley of the shadow of death. The question is not, am I going to suffer? But the question is, if I suffer, will God be with me? They held on to faith. Now, faith is an adrenaline rush. Faith says, I believe it, I believe it, I believe it's going to happen right now. Nothing wrong. There's a place for faith. But they also held on to hope. Now, not this Wednesday, but I think it's next Wednesday. I start a Wednesday night series. Pastor Corey's done such a fabulous job on Wednesday night. So I'm about I am. Um, we're going to talk. We're going to talk a few weeks about hope. But they also realized that um, not only do I need to be a person of faith, but I need to be a person of hope. And that's what was expressed when they said, uh, "God is able, and we believe He will." And we believe he will. Uh, hope is a confident expectation that commits details to God. Timing, method, and specifics are left to the Lord. See, that's why we talk about the hope of salvation or the blessed hope. See, English hope is kind of a, kind of a mellow mushroom word, you know. I hope so, you know. I hope my wife will love me, you know. I hope my husband will remember my birthday. It's like, uh, that's what I want to happen, but I don't know if it's going to happen or not. But scriptural hope is confident expectation. You say, well, then how is it different from faith? Faith operates, and this, this is a broad stroke of the brush. We, I'll talk more about it in that Wednesday night. But faith is the broad stroke of the brush that says, I believe it, and I believe it will be this way now. And there's nothing wrong with faith. Sometimes we have to have faith to be healed. Sometimes we have to have faith for deliverance. I mean, there's not, faith has its role. 
But there are some things that faith has not spoken to, and God has not left us abandoned. He gives us this beautiful thing called hope. And hope says, I may not understand the timing of it. I may not understand the method God will use. I may not understand the specifics, but God is in control. And he can heal me supernaturally. He can heal me through surgery. Or if I have to take this thing to the end of my life, he will be with me every step of the way. Now, that's why Paul said to the Corinthians, again, we'll talk about this that first Wednesday night. He says there are three things that abide. In other words, he said there are three things that abide in the life of the Christian and that are foundational to everything that God will ever do for you. Faith, hope, and love. And he said the greatest of these is faith. Good. The greatest of these is love. This is a progression. Faith operates in the moment. Hope says if God does what I want, if God does what he's able to do, fabulous. But if not... I'm still going to love him. I'm still going to love him. Job put it this way, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. They held to hope and they held to love. Um, Jesus said, you're going to have persecution. You're going to have trouble. Matthew 10, 18, he says, you're going to be brought between secular authorities. You're going to be brought before religious authorities. You're going to be victims of the mob. He says, just rejoice that you're in it for my name's sake. And God may deliver you. I'm not minimizing that. This is not a sermon saying God's not going to deliver you. I always, at the top of my list, say, Lord, here's my suggestion. Miracle and deliverance. <laughs> and give me all the riches of my adversary. You know, that's my, I've just given him a place to start. I'm not saying, this is not a message to de decrease your uh, level of faith for a miracle. But I'm saying sometimes God will do that. And I know, what, I know what it's like to stand and say, I am alive because of the healing power of Jesus Christ. I know what it's like to stand and say, I'm free, not because I'm so disciplined, but because of the delivering power of Jesus Christ. And I know what it's like to go through the toughest place imaginable only to find out that there's a fourth man in the fire with me. I remember when I was at the lowest part of, point of my life um, spiritually, Ramona and I were pastoring a church in Alabama and I, I, I was at the lowest part of my life. And um, I, every night almost at three o'clock I would be awakened by a tormenting spirit. And I would go and I would try to pray and try to get through it. And one night Ramona woke up and heard me and she came. She laid her hands on my shoulders and began to pray in tongues and just began to intercede for me in the spirit. And I, 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 I knew that God was in the place. I knew her prayers were being heard, but it was the lowest point of my life. But right in the middle of her prayers with her two little hands on my shoulders, I felt a massive muscular hand come and place itself right in the center of my back. And I want to tell you, I knew at that moment that my wife was praying for me, but I tell you what else I knew, the fourth man in the fire was praying for me. 
I, I am so amazed at Stephen's martyrdom while he is being pelted to death with rocks. He looks up and he said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the father. And boy, that really got him mad. And I was reminded of a quote. I can't find the quote. I can't tell you who said it, but it was eyewitness of Christians that had died in the Circus Maximus and had died during Nero's games. And this is what was said of some of those Christians as they died. I, I, I don't know if it's in your notes or not. A number of them looked into the sky while animals were tearing at their bodies. They looked up into the sky as though they were looking steadfastly at something or someone. See, that, that is faith that morphs to hope that turns to love. Now, what are the life lessons? What do we learn from this? There's only three, but they're three powerful life lessons. Okay? Now, they held to faith. They held to hope. They held to love. Loved ones, we have been extraordinarily blessed to be able to elect our politicians, to be able to have uh, the right uh, to freedom of religion. We have been extraordinarily blessed to have uh, this kind of dynamic expressed in American life. But I want you to know when we end up in a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A post-Christian America, we need to understand that it may not always be that way. And if it's the case, we need to hold on to faith. We need to hold on to hope. We need to hold on to love. And here are the three Christian life lessons. Here's number one. Expect opposition. Expect opposition. Pay attention to me. Expect opposition. This is what Peter said. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. See, he says, when you go through this, don't be surprised. Which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange were happening to you. In, when you have opposition, don't be surprised that it comes and don't think it's something strange. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may also rejoice and be overjoyed. If you were insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Okay, that's number one. Expect opposition. Here's number two. Loved ones, we need to be willing to join with those around the world who are suffering. We need to realize that we are part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ around the world, many of whom have suffered the loss of freedom, the loss of possessions, the loss of family, and many of them the loss of their life. Um, I encourage you to subscribe to um, a, a website and there's, they have a magazine and, and uh, a lot of mail. It's called The Voice of the Martyrs. The Voice of the Martyrs. We have taken time uh, over a couple of years to have a Sunday dedicated to The Voice of the Martyrs. And, and, and again, I've told you this, it, it, it's the least popular thing we do. It's the least popular thing we do because people say, I don't want to hear about that kind of stuff. It's the least popular thing we do, but we need 
We need to deal with it. Okay, we need to understand that we are part of a worldwide fellowship that is suffering. And here's the last thing. At the same time, okay, that we expect opposition and we join with those around the world. At the same time, we must be willing to stand alone if only for a moment. I was talking to um, a, a minister of another denomination, but this is what he said I was, we were talking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and uh, he said, uh, I, I, I can't get over something. And I said, what is that? He said, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the way he died. I said, yeah, he, he was hanged on Hitler's gallows. It was, a, it was a cruel story. He was engaged to be married, but he had stood up against Hitler, and it was cruel. He said, he didn't just die on the gallows. He was, he was hanged naked. And I said, yeah, that was, that, that, and, that, that in, added to the trauma of that death. Dietrich Bonhoeffer died naked on Hitler's gallows. And he said, why would God, why would God let a man like Dietrich Bonhoeffer be put to shame like that? And I said, well, probably because that's the way Jesus died. We, we, we all on our cross, of, uh, our crucifix, we always have a, a little shred of cloth around Jesus as modesty. But Jesus, if he died the way others died on the cross, Jesus was crucified naked. That was part of the humiliation. That was part of the disgrace of the cross. I said and to this brother, I said, brother, you've got to understand, it shouldn't be shocking to you that what the enemy did to Jesus, he would want to do to us. I want you to know, loved ones, that many heroes died without ever being known to history. I, I, I want you to know that we have to be careful so that we never fear the furnace more than we fear God. You'd say, Pastor, this, I don't like you anymore. <laughs> Again, this is why I'm taking next Sunday off. Is, 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 it, is it uncomfortable? Yes. Is it terrifying? Absolutely. I mean, for a pastor to say to a congregation, the day may be coming that you will face persecution and it's going to be more than just somebody sticking their tongue out at you or butting in front of you in the cafeteria line. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. But it is better to be honored by heaven than this present world. Talking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, another German pastor that stood against the Nazis was Martin Niemöller. And he was, was asked to come in to his fellow pastors. And they said, look, we can't stand against Hitler. This is making us look bad. It's making us look like we're not tolerant. And this is what Niemöller said. What does it matter how we look in Germany compared with how we look in heaven? Guys, we've got to start reading these scriptures instead of just glossing over them. Where Jesus spoke to the church at Sardis, he says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Loved ones, the day may be coming when we understand our most important agenda uh, item, our most important goal ought to be being, to be honored in heaven and not by society. I'm going to say this one more time. Did I tell you I'm taking next week off? 
The church over the last year has demanded fairness and is appalled that not everybody is fair to us. But loved ones, Paul said, or the writer of Hebrews says, you have shown your faith by being glad to, to suffer the loss of all that you have, the confiscation of your goods. Uh, we, we, we have spent the last year uh, in anger. So not, not everybody, and, and you know I'm talking in general terms, but we have, we have, we have complained about fairness, and then we have complained and as, with anger as though we're going to solve everything through the flesh. But I would ask you what Paul asked the Galatians. <coughs> and loved ones, we need to answer this. Paul said, huh? what made you think that having begun in the spirit, you are going to be brought to maturity in the flesh? What made you shift horses in midstream and say we're led by the Spirit, we've been born by the Spirit, we've been baptized by the Spirit, we are enabled by the Spirit, but now things have gotten so bad I'm going to change to the horse of the flesh. What has happened, what has changed that has caused you to lay down your faith and take up fear do, do, you, do you feel overwhelmed? I know, I know that we've all felt overwhelmed. But a sense of overwhelming is not designed to make you give up. It's designed to make you run to the arms of Jesus. Some say the way to deal with it is to desert. Not eat dessert, but to desert, to leave. That's what Paul said of Demas. Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. Others are just, they're confused. They're disoriented. They say, we've never been this way before. I agree. We've never faced something like this in America. I agree. And in the movie that I recommended to you a couple of weeks ago, uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ, um, Aquila and Priscilla in that story are leading the Christians in Rome and they are torn apart in their hearts. Life in Rome is getting so bad. Do we leave and take these Christians to safety or do we stay here and let our light shine brighter? And they made brilliant arguments for both sides. I understand what it's like to be disoriented. I, I understand what it's like to be dismayed. But loved ones, one thing we mustn't do, one thing we mustn't do, I, I'm going back in the notes, you don't need to go back, but Chuck Colson and some others wrote a document called the Manhattan Declaration. And this is a, just a couple of sentences out of the Manhattan Declaration. We will fully and ungrudgingly render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But under no circumstances will we render to Caesar what is God's. I'm not trying to pick a fight. This is not a call to arms. This is a call to our knees. This is a call to love. I think talking about Nemo, Nemo and uh, um, Nemo and 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 um, 
Uh, Bonhoeffer, thank you. I think about them. I think about, I think it was Niemöller. I'm not sure. But he said that, and forgive me for repeating an old story. He said there was a church in Germany that was on the way to one of the concentration camps. And he said that the tracks ran right by the church. He said, and for years the train had come and gone just hauling cargo, but we began to learn that they were going by our church almost daily, taking prisoners to the concentration camps. And this is what the pastor said to Niemöller. He said, it began to be that when the Jews that could see out the little cracks in the walls of the, of the train, they could see that they were passing a church. They said they knew that we are not Christians and we had heard horror stories about Christians and Jews, but we thought maybe if what Jesus taught is right, they will reach out to us and help us. So they began to yell train after train without no way of communicating, but it was intuitive of them. These are people that call themselves followers of God. If we can call out to them, they will help us. And it said, at first we thought we heard voices, but with the passing of time, they got louder and louder till they were screaming as they went by the church. And they said to the pastor, how did you handle that? The pastor bowed his head with tears in his eyes and said, we learned to sing louder. We learned to to hide behind our religious activity and drown out the reality of what was around us. Loved ones, I don't get too upset about people that just desert. Everybody has a moment they'd probably run if they could. I, I, I don't get too upset about people that are just saying, I just don't know what to do. I'm just not going to do anything because I believe the spirit of God in you will lead you in the way you ought to go. But I tell you what makes any true shepherd terrified is the thought that our people just sing louder. We just find, you know, this is true, but. We ought to do this, but. I know God's never failed, but. And loved ones, we have found something to hide behind that we call a cause. But I challenge you, go before God. I'm not going to argue with you, but go before God and ask him, ask him this question. Lord, am I just singing louder? Am I just singing louder? Have I found a cause that is less demanding than the one I don't want to deal with? Oh, it's going to be a year. I've said 2020 was the year where our heart was exposed. But 20, you know, we found out what we are. But 2021 is the year we will find out what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I'll tell you this. Faith, hope, and love. Paul said Christianity can't function without those three, three things. Faith. Hope and love. There's a time to stand and say, I believe God. There's a time to stand and say, it's not going the way I want it to go, but I believe God is able. 
And there's a time, loved ones, when you say, I don't understand. I want to tell you, some of you have stood by a graveside and you've, you've gone through faith. You've gone through hope. And all you can say at the graveside is, Lord, I trust you and I believe you. I'm telling you, you haven't lost your faith. Your faith is being developed. I'm telling you that if things, you look and you say, well, I never thought so-and-so would, would fall apart or I never thought so-and-so would quit. The Bible says that God will go through the process of shaking everything that can be shaken so that when the shaking is over, what's left standing is what was designed to stand to begin with. Now, I'm, I, I can't be the kind of pastor that just pats you on the back and says everything's going to be all right. We're going through the most difficult time in society, as far as I'm concerned, that we've ever known in America, with the exception possibly of the Civil War. We're going through a time when the church in, of any time is at its lowest level of approval and respect in American history. Ever, ever, we're at the bottom. So what do we do? We, we, we change our names and we hide. No. We cling to faith. We cling to hope. We cling to love. And when society continues to fragment, we love them with the love of Jesus. And we become evident of what Christianity is, the only hope of the world. Father, thank you for our time together today. Thank you for showing us that it's, it's not unusual when the powers that be think they are almighty powers. I pray that you would spare our country from that. I pray for our president and his his, uh, for, the, for the entire executive branch. I pray for our legislative branch, the senators and the congressional members. I pray for them. I pray for our judges from the lowest level all the way up to the Supreme Court. I pray that you would speak to them so we don't make the mistake of going in a direction that would be detrimental to us as Americans. Lord, we've said it before, and I, it, it, it doesn't matter who the president is. It doesn't matter who's in the Supreme Court. It doesn't matter who's in Congress. Without the hand of the Lord, we're in deep trouble. And so we pray for our leaders because you told us to do that. And we pray for the church because this is your building. This is your people. Father, help us to respond well in the days ahead. Help us to, to respond well in the days ahead. I want to thank Christian Life for letting me share these six messages from Daniel. I want to thank them for trusting me enough to let me express my heart. Now, Lord, all of us, we ask you to come to us. But, Lord, we also want to say this. We're running to you. We are in pursuit of you. We don't want to just sit back and ask you to help us. We want you to help us, but we're going to pursue you with all of our heart. And if there's anyone listening online or in the sanctuary or over in Brown Chapel that does not know you as Lord, 
that does not know that Jesus is the forgiver of their sins. Lord, those online, let them call the number that's on the screen. People are standing by to help. If they're here at church, then let them come forward, talk to a prayer partner and say, I want Jesus as the Lord of my life. And I want to serve him. I want to serve him in good times and bad. I ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, now come. I know there are those that are sick and need healing. I know there are those that are frightened and need calming. I know there are those that are confused and need guidance. Lord, we're not only asking those that want to accept Jesus to come, we're asking for those that need prayer to come. And we wanna ask you to set your people free. Set your people free in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.